You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Before I begin in the message, the, uh, we just want to remind you that we have done uh, a series on We Are the Church. We've introduced church membership. On the back white table, there are some documents, our, our, our statement of faith and constitution, our congregational affirmation of faith, and also a, uh, the church covenant. And I'm not going to go through this right now. Those are available for you. I just want, we want you to know that we have, I didn't count them, tw- uh, 12 or 15 most of our home community leaders and, and deacons and two elders that I know have, uh, are into, with the membership. And uh, so we just want to encourage you. We, we don't, the, the danger is you say, oh, yeah, well, I'll get around to it. We would really like to get you to get around to it if you plan on joining now. There's always opportunities later in February so that we can have a celebration of that uh, in sometime in early March. So, okay? You can be the keeper of those. Today we're continuing in, with Matthew, uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew, and I want to begin today by showing you a flyer that somebody gave me this week. Um, maybe you get it. Uh, it's a Revelation seminar, Countdown Armageddon. Um, I'm not going to comment on this, basically, because I don't know who they are. Um, conveniently, their name's not on there. And, uh, but judging by the pictures on the cover... And the topics, I probably could guess the point of view that they're going to take. And when it comes to topics such as commonly referred to as end times, uh, you can take it off now because everybody's reading that and not listening. So I wonder who it is. Oh, is it them? No. Focus here, people. When, when thinking about the end times or the second coming of Jesus, people generally, and this is a generalization, have two reactions. One is sometimes fascination. They like learning about the proposed details and the most recent players in these epic events and how they're going to soon un- unfold, any time now. And then on the other side, there are people who react, and I would say mostly in fear. They're like, uh, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with all these confusing details and different opinions, and they just rather just keep the whole topic at arm's length uh, and just basically ignore it altogether. And as we're going to look at today, neither reaction is particularly healthy. In fact, it's, it's not biblical to do either one. The Bible does have a lot to say about what's called end times. It does have a lot to say about Jesus' second coming. Therefore, we should pay attention to it. In fact, uh, as we will see over the next three weeks, Jesus himself has a lot to say about these things. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at chapter 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew. Just before Jesus goes to the cross, this is his last teaching he gives his disciples, and he wraps up his teaching. It's called the Olivet Discourse, talking about, end time, we'll see about Jerusalem, the end times, and his second coming, and the final judgment. Uh, I want to, to stress right from the beginning that we need to try to understand this passages that we're looking at, chapters 24 and 25, from the perspective of Jesus and his disciples first, and then Matthew's readers second. It's important 
that we uh, learn and to, to understand things um, from their perspective before we jump into trying to interpret it and understand it from our side. Uh, we, we, we need to begin by looking from the first century forward in time is the way they viewed it. That's the way Jesus spoke it. That's the way the disciples understood it. Not from the 21st century, looking back 2,000 years, trying to fill in our perspectives, our dates, what we, what we think it means for us today. I'm not saying it doesn't have anything for us today. It does. But we don't begin there. Uh, one person I was reading explained it this way. Is understanding a pa- these passages is like looking at writing on a glass door. You look at writing a glass door. If you're, they, we're standing in front of a door the way it's supposed to be. We can read the writing well. We understand. It's clear uh, right away. But if we pass through the door and go to the other side and we turn around and look at it, it's going to be inverted. And, and he was saying, that's why it is. When we look at Matthew 24 and 25, we need to sit there as if we were Jesus and disciples looking through the glass the way they were looking at it, not from our perspective 2,000 years later with inverted writing. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to try to do today. Now, before we look at our passage, it's important that we uh, uh, understand a few things. And I'm just going to zip through these. I'm going to go fairly quickly. But I want to make sure they're stated because I'm going to uh, share from the Scriptures with these things in mind. For example, the Old Testament narratives, the covenants, the law, the rituals, the promises, the prophecies point to a coming Messiah, point to a coming Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, not only of Israel, but of the world. And this Savior we know to be Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the gospel that we preach, not only is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, which is true and important and the epicenter of the gospel, but our gospel message is also that the many dimensions of him being Messiah, being fulfilled in him, are also true. Jesus was a fulfillment of these things. He, the, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for all the promises of God have their yes in Jesus. He, the covenantal blessings to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. The eternal kingship of David was fulfilled in Jesus. The presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple was fulfilled in Jesus. The sacrifices for sin were fulfilled in Jesus. The Sabbath rest was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus himself, after his resurrection, instructed his disciples in this way. For example, we could look at a number of different places, but one example in Matthew, excuse me, Luke 24 Jesus says to this, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe what the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he instructed them in how to understand the Old Testament. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that that from the perspective of the Old Testament writers, and we're not going to spend much time in the Old Testament today, but we need to understand that Old Testament writers and the prophets, the coming of the Messiah appeared to them, because it's in the distance, in time and stuff, as one single epic event. But we know from reading the New Testament writers, who had a greater understanding of these things, that in greater clarity, they explained the coming of the Messiah. They came in two phases. His first coming, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was here, but there's a second way Jesus is going to come, and we don't know when that's going to be. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophets' uh, promises and predictions in the first coming. Um, he is the fulfillment of those things then. But there's another aspect theologians and pastors talk about is that he will be the consummation 
of all things at his second coming. He will complete everything. A common way of referring to this is that we're in the already not yet. The already not yet. Jesus has already come and saved us from our sins, but his not yet complete. And we could look at, and I'm not going to today because of time, a number of words, justification and redemption and reconciliation and and glorification and sanctification and, and just that we're saved by grace through faith. The word saved, we have it sometimes in the past tense. We have been saved through faith. And then we also have it in the future tense. We will be saved when he appears. Well, which is it, past or future? And the answer is both, both. We live in this tension of the already, not yet. And we need, so we uniquely are there. We have a clear perspective looking back. Going forward, we have a little less clear. But we need to understand that we live in this tension and we benefit greatly from his first coming, but we are to eagerly anticipate his second coming. The last thing to, before we look at the passage I wanted to talk about is that we need to also be committed to uh, using the New Testament as our primary lens for which we understand the Old Testament and the Gospels. They knew more than we did. They unpacked it. Jesus taught them things. And we need to look through the covenants and the prophetic messages through the lens of the New Testament, their understanding before. We don't read Daniel and then jump to today. We have to take Daniel through the cross, through the New Testament understanding. And the Old Testament anticipates the realities that are explained in the New Testament. And it would behoove us to look at the New Testament explanations. And so, therefore, we want to be careful, not just reading of the past, even what Jesus says today, and jump 2,000 years later and say, what does that have to do with with us today? So, we're going to look at Matthew. But before we actually look at Matthew 24, again, I need a little preliminary work, so bear with me. We've got a a lot of ground to cover. Matthew wrote a book... And there's a flow, there's a context. He, he didn't just tell a bunch of ad hoc stories. He's trying to describe something specific. In Matthew 21, which we've done a while ago, Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. And there he cleanses the temple. And there he tells a series of parables. And the point of the parables is that the, the Jews there were getting it wrong. And for example, he says, Jesus said to them, he tells a parable of two sons, and he says to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom before you do. And then he tells another parable of the talent, uh, tenants, and he says, therefore I tell you, he's telling us what the parable means. The kingdom, of he- he- the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. And then in verse 45, they say, The chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, and they perceived that he was speaking about them. That's because he was. And they understood that he was denouncing them and how they were living. 22 goes to different things. Parable of the wedding feast and who is the, who is the Christ. And then we looked at verse, uh, chapter 23 yesterday, which is, which is kind of a, it's a hard passage. I told Josh, I'm lucky you drew the short straw of the seven woes, okay? Seven woes. One of the principles of preaching is the, the um, tone of the passage should be the tone of the message. So you get to be woe on that day, okay? Seven woes. Jesus renounced the religious leaders point blank, went toe-to-toe and said, I've done all this, I've done the miracles, do it toe-to-toe, and you guys have missed it. And then he says at the end of that in verse 36, 23, 36, says, truly I say to you, all these things, all seven of these woes will come upon this generation. What generation? That generation he was talking to. They were going to see those seven woes come upon them. And then at the end, at end of 23, Jesus says this. He does this lament over Jerusalem. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 37, 
chapter 23, verse 37. He goes, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it, how often, you have, I, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What's his point? He gets to the end of the woes, and he looks at Jerusalem, and he laments. It, he mourns. It's like a funeral. And he states plainly, the, the, see, your house is left, you desolate. It's left, past tense. God's glory in this place has departed. And then he left Jerusalem. And then we pick up in Matthew 24, and that's the context, the flow of Matthew, is to turn our attention to what Jesus is talking about. Just before he's crucified, he now tells us some important things. The last thing he tells his disciples before he's crucified. He's, he's, and in chapter 24, if you're familiar with it, as we, we're going to go through every verse of, most of the verses today, the beginning of chapter 24 is difficult. It's hard reading. Part of the problem is a lot of our ears have been tuned to apply certain meanings to it that may not be there. So I want us to be, uh, try to listen openly. Uh, it's difficult, and there's basically three perspectives. There's the first perspective that in 24 and 25, Jesus is only talking about some future event, way in the distance, his second coming. So everything he says is going to be about the future. I do not believe that's a great way, I do not think that's the accurate way to read this chapter, just to be up, put it out on the table. The second one is some people think Jesus is making broad statements, sort of principles pertaining to the whole period of time between his first coming and his second coming. Maybe, maybe. There's, a, there's more leeway there to understand that. The third perspective, which, which I'm going to present to you today, is that Jesus is actually addressing in chapter 4 two topics, not one. He's addressing two topics. Some of these things are going to happen in this generation. He's telling his disciples that. And then some of the things are going to happen, and we don't know when they're going to happen, and that's going to be the coming of the Son of Man and His second coming. And I think this is the best perspective, and as I unpack it, I'll tell you why. And it's important that we understand that, that Jesus, he, he, He's here just before the crucifixion. He's teaching them well, sort of His last thing, and then he, he dies, raises from the dead. He's with them for a while, then He ascends to heaven. And then we have a period of gap of about 35 years that the New Testament was written. And at the end of that time, we have all the New Testament written, and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And I think part of this is Jesus saying, this is going to happen. I've denounced that the presence has departed from the temple, and then there's a 35-year period where Jesus, the New Testament writers, are experiencing what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, and they're writing about it. And then when they're done writing, the temple is destroyed. If the temple had been destroyed the day after Jesus ascended into heaven, chaos would have been, have been through the things. But since we have a New Testament that explains the events that they experienced and all the things Jesus talked about at length, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was no crisis for the Christians. It was a horrible event, but there was no crisis of faith for the Christians. It didn't change their theology. They didn't want, oh, we've got to rewrite the New Testament no, because they understood what's going to happen. It's from that perspective that we're going to look quickly today at this passage. Matthew 24. We're going to read the first couple verses here, first two verses. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see these, do you not? 
Truly, I say to you, there will not be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're leaving, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the temple area. The, 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 the country boy disciples are amazed at the building. And Jesus says, you see this temple? It's going to be destroyed. And, and this is not a little thing. It's not like you know, just a, a, a Super Bowl stadium be coming down. This is the building of a country and of a nation and of a religion. And he says, it's coming down. That is a very, very dramatic prediction. And then it sees him pick it up in verse 3. He continues in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming and the, and the end of the age? So I have not been to uh, Israel. So my understanding is he left Jerusalem, went through a valley, came up on the hill of the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting on that, probably looking at Jerusalem, and they can see the temple. And since he just said this thing's coming down, his disciple says, Yeah, we want a little bit more detail. Okay, You can't say something like that. And just let it, let it go. So they came to him privately and said, as they probably were looking at it, saying, when is this going to happen? And they, here's the important thing. So Jesus, they do that. So the response to, this is their response to what they heard and what they've seen. Again, they're experiencing this. They ask two questions. Two questions. The first one, tell us when these things will be. What things? What he just talked about the destruction of the temple. And then they ask a second question. And when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus had already taught about some of this in his parables. Now, the disciples, like Old Testament prophets, probably thought this is one single event. They had no other reason at that time to know otherwise. If the temple's coming down, surely the Messiah's coming back again. And never mind. But they ask, it's important that they ask two questions. So the rest of chapter 24, we'll see Jesus' answers to these two questions. Now, some people will think, and they teach, that this is just one question, that it's really not two questions, and that's important. It depends how you look at it. Basically, the disciples ask them, when your second coming? And, and, uh, and they say, well, Matthew 24 and 25 is one answer to one question, and I just don't think that's the best way to read this and understand that in their context. They, and then those people tend to also, just to tip my hand, tend to start with the 21st century and read back some of these details, and therefore they're looking for, as the poster showed, modern personalities and events to fill in the details as they read through Matthew 24. Because if it hasn't happened yet, we want to fill in the details. However, Jesus, his disciples, and Matthew's early readers would not have thought to think of it that way. They would not have understood what was happening in that way. They would have understood that what Jesus was saying was in its immediate context to those group of Jews, that temple. They would not have thought about a long time away. It, and the things that they had just happened. They were there. They experienced it. He just denounced the leaders, proclaiming Rose. He just, the disciples were asking about the existing temple, not some future temple. And Jesus said the existing temple will be destroyed, not some future temple. And the language of this passage throughout Matthew, uh, through chapter 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples as if they're going to experience what he's saying. For example, in verse 6, as we look at these things, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors and wars. See that you are not alarmed. He's talking to them. And therefore, we need to understand, how would they have understand that? And Jesus, at the end of chapter 23, when he denounced the temple, he says, he says Truly I say to you, all these things... This, excuse me, he denounced the leaders... All these things will come upon this generation. You'll see this. 
At the end of this chapter, we'll see it when we get to the end of it sometime, he says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So clearly, Jesus is expressing a a perspective that the people there listening to him will experience what he's saying. Now, what we're going to do today is look at this in two parts. We're going to look at the first part, verses 4 through 35, and again, we're going to go fairly quickly, where Jesus answers the first question, when will these things happen? And I think he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then the second part is, well, when is the Son of Man coming back? And then he addresses that later, verses 36 through 44. Let's just jump right in. When will these things happen? Jesus is speaking to his disciples around 33 AD. 33 AD. We know historically that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So it's about a 35-year gap of time. And the books of the New Testament, all of them, were written between these two, these two dates. And that's important, as I've already said. And so much of what he's talking about here is pointing to that huge event of the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. Let's look begin in verse 44. Again, we're going to move fairly quickly. And when Jesus answered them, so they asked the question, See that no one leads you astray. He begins with a warning. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things... Uh, but the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus, right from the beginning, gives a warning. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived right out. I'm going to talk about some stuff, but right out the chute, I'm telling you this so you don't get fooled, and people are going to try to fool you. He's telling that to his disciples. And Matthew's telling that to the, his original readers. There will be all kinds, all kinds of apparent indicators that the end is near, but don't pay attention to them, he's telling them. Don't be distracted by what's important. You've got a gospel to preach. You've got a great commission to do. Don't get distracted. And in verse 5, he says, there will be false prophets and false leaders and who would deceive people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And we know this happened throughout the New Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament writers. In Acts, we read about uh, Simon, the magician, and it says that the people, all the people paid attention to him, for he was, he was from the least of the grace, saying, this man has the power of God that is great. And they worshipped him as a prophet of God. There were false teachers leading him away. In Acts 13, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Patphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Again, so we could go on and on, and many of the Galatians was written to false, because false teachers were screwing up the gospel for the churches there. So this idea that they will experience false teachers happened. Much of the New Testament is written addressing to that. And then he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so don't be alarmed. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, and especially there were all kinds of military conflict during that period of time. It's always been the case, and he's saying there will always be wars. That's not important to pay attention to. Don't freak out, he's saying. That's my paraphrase of Jesus, okay? For example, in Acts 21, Paul is arrested, and the guys who arrest him, he speaks to them in Greek, and they're surprised. And, and he says to him this, it's kind of an odd thing, he says, the, the, the soldier says to him, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of assassins into the wilderness? And Paul goes, ah, uh, no. But my point is, he was confused, but there were so many of these kind of things going on, he, they were confused. Of course, if you're reading the revolt, you've got to be that guy. No, I'm not. Okay? 
they, Paul, Jesus said it, they experienced. And during his time in, in Judea and that area and the Middle East, there was all sorts of wars. And I'm not going to go through them. Caesarea, Alexandria, Damascus, and thousands and tens of thousands of Jews were killed during this time in those wars. So it happened during the time, even before the temple. It says a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, wars, invasions, and rebellions were a constant during this time period. And, and it says even that you'll see famines and earthquakes. Well, those are recorded in the New Testament. Philippian jailer, how they get out? The earthquake happened. And in famine, and in Acts 11, we're told there's a prophet named Agabus who stood up and told in the spirit that there would be a great famine throughout the land. And they experienced. Jesus said there's going to be famines. Don't get sidetracked by the famines. That's what he said. And he says, all these things are, being, are just but birth pains. Don't be mis- misled. It's just the beginning. And then he goes on. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. 9 through 14. It says, Then, then they will deliver you up to tribulation to, and put you to death. Then you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And, then, and, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And, be, and because of lawlessness there, it will, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, first of all, red flag word, tribulation, tribulation. Uh, some people now would automatically put in, fill in a blank there of some seven-year period in the distant future per their view of these things. That's not what the word means. It's not an event. The word tribulation simply means distress. Remember Jesus said, uh, in this world you will have what? tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You're going to have distress. Life is going to be hard. And that's what he's saying. This word tribulation is not an event. It simply means they're distressed. People are going to be anxious about these things. And then Jesus turns their attention to how the disciples and other Christians will be persecuted during this time. And again, it's recorded over and over again in the New Testament. What Jesus said would happen was happened. Acts chapter 5, the high priest rose up. And when the and all with, all with him, and they filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into prison. So the religious leaders were persecuting the church. Acts 12, but at the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So the civil government is killing the Christians. And then, and then even when Paul, later in his life, in his ministry, he's writing his letters to Timothy. Those are written later, towards the end, almost in his life. He's getting, winding down, he's in Rome, and he's writing that stuff. He's saying to them, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, three times he says this, You are aware that all in Asia have turned away from me. Among them are Philegius Hermogenes. He names names. In, verse, in chapter 4, he says, Do your best to come to me, Timothy, for Demius in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And then a few verses later, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my last defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So the things that Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted, and the love is going to grow cold, and people are going to abandon the faith, happened during the time of the church, early church. Verse 14, let's pick up, where he says, And the gospel will be claimed to the kingdom throughout the whole world, and the testament of the nations, and then the end will come. Aha! See, we know that the gospel has not been claimed to every single individual, every single country in the world, so this must be about the second coming. Not exactly. 
Okay, first of all, that's not what Jesus said. But let's look at the word. The word translated whole world, we think it means universal or globally. We think of the whole planet. They did not use that phrase in that way. They would have thought of a specific region or geographic area. How do I know this? By the way they use the word. For example, one example, Luke 2. And Luke 2, in the birth of Jesus, announcing the birth of Jesus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the, all the world would be registered in a census. All the world. The whole world is going to be registered. Now, practically speaking, who did he mean? The Roman Empire. Did the Chinese and the people in Africa and South America, did they go register with Rome? No. So they used the word whole world, meaning all of us here that we're part of. That's what he used it. But, but Royce, it says the gospel will be claimed to the whole world. And that hasn't happened yet, apparently. Well, again, I think we need to think within the context of how they use the whole word whole world. How they use the word whole world. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this. Listen to what Paul says. This is many years later. This is halfway between Jesus saying it and the fall of Jerusalem. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, listen to this, as indeed in the whole world. It is, present tense, bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you've heard it and understood God's grace and truth. And Paul's perspective, when he wrote to the Colossians, the gospel had gone to the whole world. It had spread that fast to the Roman Empire and beyond. In his mind, the whole world had heard the gospel. Okay? So we need to understand it in that perspective. We need to keep going. Verse 15. Verse 15. So, when you hear of the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the leader understand. Now, we're not sure if Jesus said, let the reader, but I would assume Matthew put that in there as an editorial note. Hey, guys, listen up. So, again... When you see, he says the phrase, implies that those people listening to him will see what he's talking about. When you see this, okay, uh, abomination of desolation uh, was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We're not going to unpack the, the passage in Daniel. Literally, it's the abomination that causes desolation. It's a horrible thing that's going to be in the temple. Well, it, for those historically, as we look at, at the history of Israel and the history of Judaism, it already has happened even before Jesus. After Daniel, but it's already happened in one sense. And that is in the year 168 B.C., the Syrian king killed 40,000 Jews, and then he plundered the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, and he erected the image of Zeus on the altar. That is an abomination of desolation. It was pretty traumatic. Israel recovered. And now Jesus saying these words is reminding them this. It's like us saying something about 9-11. Oh, Oh, we remember how we felt. And they remember. Even though it's historical, it brought up emotion. And he says, that's what it's going to be. And we also know, historically, at the end of the New Testament time, the Jewish revolt in 66 AD, and by 68, the Romans had conquered most of that area. And then after a brief pause, because the Romans, fighting among themselves, had a civil war, so they had to stop their war, go back to Italy, Rome, fix the civil war, and then they came back to Jerusalem, and, in, and, they, and they, they picked up the attack in 69 AD, and then the Roman general Titus put in Jerusalem uh, under siege for five months and until the city and the temple were finally destroyed in 70 AD. During this time, there were numerous violence uprisings. I'm not going to recount them. It's documented historically. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, even against each other, Jews fought each other, other sections, other people fought each other. There was terrible famine. Thousands of people died of starvation in Jerusalem. Um, and then uh, the Romans, um, even uh, officers, uh, offered unclean spirits and erected the Roman standards in the temple uh, just before they destroyed it. It's estimated that over a million Jews died in, those, in that year period. A million, mostly around or in Jerusalem. It was horrible. It was horrible by all stretches of the imaginations. And we don't know this just hearsay. God provided, I would say supernaturally, historians. One was named Josephus, and one was uh, another one. And he actually was an eyewitness and recorded the events. So we know what happened because we can read his book. And we still have it today. We need to move on. 16 through 24. Big chunk here. 16 through 24. Then let those who... Are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let the ones who are in the housetops go down to take to the house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back, take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray, verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, again, great distress, hardship, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world to now or ever will be, implying there's going to be a lot of time after this to have distress. Verse 22, And if, if those days were not cut short, then, then no human being would be saved, but in the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. If, if then you, one says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or there, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs, great signs and wonders, so as to lead many astray as possible, even the elect. In verse 16, it makes it seem like, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's talking about a specific geographic place. He also says, and um, basically, my vernacular, it's the only thing I could think of this way to how to summarize this. Jesus is saying, when the shooting starts, get out of Dodge. Just leave. Just leave. And he's telling them, and we know that most of the Christians did leave during this, before the siege. They left. Jesus is using apocalyptic, very dramatic language to describe the urgency and the distress of those days, particularly of the fall of Jerusalem. And he's warning against the false prophets and the false Christ who are going to try to leverage these events to get followers behind them, is what did, which led to a lot of civil wars and fighting. And then in verse 25, we need to keep moving. Verse 25 says, see that you, verse 25 through 28, see I told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, here he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, here he is in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures also be. And, and so again, in verse 25, he says, See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus is saying to those listening to him, When these things happen, I want you to remember what I told you. He want, he's reminding them of that. And then he says, Then Jesus warns them that there will be some who try to fool others, saying that the Messiah is coming in secret. The Messiah is coming. He's here, but he's out in the desert, or he's in this room. He's in secret. And, and Jesus says, You know what? When the Son of Man comes everybody's going to know. Everybody in the whole world will know if he comes. So there's no secret coming of the Messiah. Again, the early church, very early on, had to deal with that lie that was floating around the church. 
Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, one of his earlier letters. He had it right to the Thessalonians, and they were dealing with this. He says in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by the Spirit or the Word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. His point being, his point being is that uh, listen, they're going to try to say, I'm the Messiah, or he's out there. Listen, if you can't tell that he's back, he's not back. There's no secret coming. Verses 29 through 31. 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation on those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon and will not give its light, and the stars will fall to heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And verse 30, and then will... He, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels and the loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heaven to the other. Needless to say, these verses are hard to understand. Uh, there's people incredibly more smart and intelligent than I am who struggle with these. Um, people think that all sorts of things of what he's saying. Some people think he's, uh, Jesus is talking about a second coming that's only in the future. Some people say no. Others point to the fact that the previous verses, he said in there, after the tribulation of the, those days, those days, not the future, those days, then it will come. And this is what I'm leaning toward, that he's still referring to, he's continuing his frame of thought. But here's the reality is Jesus seems to be quoting and paraphrasing, paraphrasing Old Testament prophecies. And, and because of the scope of sermon, we can't sit here and try to go back and forth to try to understand it. Needless to say, he's saying there is some kind of cosmic spiritual event happening that he's trying to describe that the writer Matthew and disciples were having trouble putting their mind around. And we do too. We need to move on. And one reason I think it's still referring to the stuff he said before is in verse 30, 32 through 35, he wraps up what he's been talking about. From, for, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as the branch comes, the tender uh, puts out its leaves. You know that summer is near. Jesus has given an analogy. You can read the signs of nature, so you should be able to read the signs that I just gave you. Verse 33. So also, so he's now telling them the meaning of that. So also, when you see these, all these things, you, you will know that he's near at the very gates. When you see all these things. When what things? Well, the things he's been describing so far. And then verse 34 and 35, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus again emphasizes that those listening to him will see what he's describing come to pass. That's the lesson of the fig tree. Now, just a real quick summary now. What have I been trying to say? In these verses 4 through 35, Jesus is answering the question, when will these things happen? And he's describing the period between his, his resurrection and ascension and the fall in 70 AD of the temple. And he's specifically talking about the temple. He's talking about what the Christians will experience during this time. But Jesus continues. He continues. And we're going to pick up a transition in verse 36. This is going to be much shorter because it's a lot less verses. So we need to continue, though. I need to show the contrast. Verse 36, he begins a major transition, I think, uh, what he's talking about. And so Jesus now is answering the second question his disciples answered. And what will be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? 
Now, actually, we're only going to look a few verses. What Jesus answers this question for the rest of chapter 24 and all of 25. We're going to spend the next two weeks filling in the answer. So what I'm going to say today is just one point. He then is going to say more about it over the next two weeks, our next two weeks. Verse 36. But concerning the day of the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This phrase begins with the word, but. It might seem like a little grammatical word, but it's a big word. It implies a contrast. Compared to what I've just been saying, but now there's something different, I'm going to say. And concerning the day, no one knows. He explicitly says, that day when the, when the Son of Man returns, no one knows but the Father in heaven. That's it. Uh, now, he can't be referring to all the things he's just talked about for the previous 30 or 40 verses, because he just spent at great length saying, know these things. This is what's going to happen. It doesn't make sense for him to say, no, but you never know. It never happened. And so, in fact, in verse 33, he ended it with, the, it says, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near. So, so the coming of the Son of Man can't be that thing. And the disciples asked him in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus answers, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So they asked for a sign. They asked for a sign. What is that cue? What is that marker? What's the event that's going to happen that we know then? We see that and we know the Son of Man's coming. And Jesus' answer is, no one knows but the Father in heaven. So, what is Jesus' answer? There is no sign. There is no sign. Nobody other than the Father in heaven knows when that day will be. That's it. Now, you think, that's pretty dramatic, pretty short answer, Jesus. He, he continues for the rest of chapter 24 and 25. Okay, he unpacks this, but let's look on. Now, in order to be clear, Jesus continues with an explanation in detail of what he means. There's no sign of my coming. Look at verses 37 through 41. Verses 37 through 41. For, this, he's given an explanation, because, this is explaining it, as we're in the days of Noah, so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they will be unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be in grinding in the, at the mill. One will be taken and one left. What's Jesus' point? He uses illustration. Noah and to life situations in their day. His point is, people will be completely caught off guard when the Son of Man returns. At Jesus' second coming, everybody will be caught off guard. There is no previous sign. That's what he said. That's what he illustrated. It will be life as normal, and when nobody is expecting it, boom, like lightning across the sky, Jesus will be back. That's what he's saying. In fact, one writer who was reading this, I like how he said it. He says, when will Jesus come? Jesus will come at the time when his coming is the farthest thing in people's minds. That's when he's coming. Now, again, lest we think that maybe, okay, for the people of the world won't know when Jesus comes, but we Christians, because we have all the Bible, we'll know when he comes. It's not what Jesus says. Look at verse 42. Therefore, again, he's connecting what he's saying. Therefore, stay awake. That's his main point, by the way. Stay awake. 
for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Remain alert at all times. Be vigilant in your anticipation of Jesus' return. We're going to see next week he tells three parables with this big idea. He continues. Four, look at four. You do not know the day of the Lord is coming. Four, because why should we stay awake? Why should we be alert? He's telling the Christians. He's telling the disciples. For you, you do not know when the day of your Lord will come back. It's not hypothetical. He's talking about their Lord. So it's not just for the world. It's for Christians will not know. Again, Jesus provides more explanation. Verse 43. But know this. I think it's an important point. Jesus says, but know this. If the master of the house had known that what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Now thieves, if they're at least good thieves, do not announce when they're coming. That's the point. And so Jesus, so a smart master is going to stay vigilant so that, and prepare his house so it won't be broken into because he doesn't know when the thief is coming. And then verse, and then verse 44, therefore, now he's explaining what that, what that whole uh, thief coming in tonight thing says, therefore, you must be ready. That's his point. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect him. Again, the, 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 it's to us. You must be ready. You must stay awake. You must be alert because he's coming when you do not expect him. Today, we have, um, we've been going through this, but I'm going to have to stop here. Okay, not, not just because of time. I could keep going. You guys want to keep me going? No, okay. It's because now Jesus, I just want to get across the main emphasis here. Jesus says, they asked the question about Jerusalem. He answered it. The answer is, what's the sign? And Jesus says, there is no sign. Stay awake. Stay alert. Because I'm coming when you don't expect it. He then is going to tell three consecutive parables unpacking that. So we're going to stop here and pick that up next week. I have a few more things to say today, but that. And then after next week, in two weeks, we're going to look at the end of 25, where Jesus says, when I do come back, it'll be the final judgment. And he describes what it'll be like for his final judgment. I want to take two primary takeaways for today. Two primary takeaways for today. And then we'll be continuing. First of all, why did Jesus answer this way? I think, first of all, one part of this is because he, he told the, the New Testament between his resurrection and, and the fall of Jerusalem, the New Testament was written, they explained the theology, that came out. But I think the main important, the first part of this passage, verses 4 through 35, I think it was, what's Jesus' main point? Based on verse, chapters 21, 22, 23, and now 24, what's he saying? Jesus is saying, prophetically, explaining that Israel's place as a center of God's redemptive plan is over. They're done. They're done. Jesus is the fulfillment of the narratives, the covenants, the laws, the rituals, the promises, the prophecies. They point to him as the coming Messiah, and he is that. And our gospel message proclaims all those things about him. He is a fulfillment of those covenants, the kingship, the presence of God, the sacrifices, the Sabbath. Jesus is that. It's always been God's plan that he was that. He came to the nation of Israel, and he offered that to them. They refused. He said, okay, and he backed off, and he left them. So, well, who then are the people of God? 
I mean, that begs the question. If Jesus is saying, Israel, we're done, then who are the people of God? Well, Jesus' fulfillment uh, of those things makes him the true Israel, and he came to do what Israel should have done but failed to do. And therefore, anyone who responds through repentance and faith to the message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and he is our Savior and Lord is identified in Christ and they become partakers of the promises of God and are included in the people of God. So what am I trying to say? The church, the church is the people of God. Now the church does not replace Israel. Some people get it carried away with that kind of language. The church is a continuation of the people of God that Israel once was, but now the church is. There are people who are Jews and a part of Israel who will continue to be people of God, but they will do that through Jesus Christ. They will not do it as a separate nation. Everybody, everywhere, at any time, is now included to be part of the people of God, the church, when they respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers went to great length to unpack this. For example, in Galatians 3, Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29, for as, many, for as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek. Those distinctions don't matter anymore. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're start part of the people of God. And then in, in, in 1 Peter 2, a well-known passage, the language of Israel is used for the church. He says this in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the people of God, the continuation. The second thing I want us to walk away from, and the big idea I want us to walk away from, is that the gospel message that we preach to other people, and even more importantly, that we preach to our own hearts, must include the anticipation of Jesus' imminent return, as well that we will, and as we will see in the coming weeks his final judgment. That should be in front of us constantly. We should always be looking back to see what Jesus accomplished on our behalf in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Absolutely. It's the epicenter of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. We are to be instructed over and over again in the New Testament to constantly looking forward, eagerly anticipating Jesus' return. Not in some vague kind of possibility, but in an urgent reality. We don't know. Be ready. That's what we're going to look at. We should be a people, as a church, as families, as individuals, who are always looking to the cross but we're then quickly looking forward to Christ's return and anticipating that return. One of my favorite passages that I have ministered to me many times over the years is Titus chapter 2, and he says this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, the gospel, past tense, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13. How? How are we supposed to live now? 
Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, again, a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. We look back, we look forward. That is what part of the message of today. We'll continue unpacking that next week and the week after. I want to invite you, if you have responded to the gospel message that Christ has died for your sins, whether or not you understood that he was coming back a second time or not, I want to invite you to take communion. For those here who have, are Christians who have replied to the gospel message and repentance of sin, and they have, are followers of Christ, I want you to be, invite you to receive communion. A verse that I was thinking about this week as I was playing about this message is in John 1. He said, he came to, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you go up and take communion, whether with yourself or other people, your family, home community, whatever you take it, remind yourself that, that he came to you and you have then received the blessings that he has, not only in the past tense of the cross, the blood and the bread that we celebrate, but also that's a guarantee of his returning someday. So in closing, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to, have, to pray to yourself. Instead of me praying, I'm going to ask you to pray. 30 seconds. Think about what you heard. Think about how it might apply. Ask yourself maybe, are, are you part of the people of God? If so, how do you know? Or maybe ask yourself, are you staying alert, anticipating Jesus' return? Again, how do you know? I just want you just don't think about other people. Think about yourself. What is the Holy Spirit telling you? And then we'll continue with worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the fulfillment of all the promises and you are going to be the consummation of all those same promises. And you have included us in those benefits through your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and your coming again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at